okay. If you're a journalist who uses the tool Help a Reporter Out, or Harrow, listen up. Harrow is moving to Cision's new app, Connectively. But what is Connectively? Well, imagine a place where you can quickly connect with expert sources for your next story. Connectively is a new app from Cision that's changing the way journalists like us, content creators, experts and PRs work together. So if you're in search of credible sources, Connectively is your next stop. With just a click, you can publish your queries. These go straight to a feed where experts from loads of different backgrounds can respond, giving you their expertise. So go on, visit connectively.us to sign up for free. That's C-O-N-N-E-C-T-I-V-E-L-Y dot U-S. Connectively dot us. Hello and welcome to Freelancing for Journalists. I'm Lily Cantor. And I'm Emma Wilkinson. And welcome back to Series 11. If you don't know, the podcast it comes out every week and we discuss an issue affecting freelance journalists with the help of two experienced guests. Yes, and today's topic is one I think you will all want to know about, which is what do editors want? We have done this before, all the way back in 2020 when we were podcast newbies, uh, but it was a really popular one. So we have grabbed two new different commissioning editors to get their tips and advice on how to um, first get their attention in the first place and then keep it once we have it. Yeah, so we'll be bringing in our guests in a minute. But first, as always, we want to start on a positive note with our freelance win of the week. So Emma, what's yours this week? Yeah, so I... um got a new bit a new client this week a new bit of work uh, I spotted a call out for freelancers to write news stories for a medical publication um and I so I got in touch with them and it turns out I was already on their list of people to contact so it's a small world um so I'm very glad I sent that email quickly because it makes me look very on the ball for once but I was just procrastinating um so yeah I've had a meeting and that's all something that might start in January so that's quite positive it's always good to find new people to to work for uh what's yours Lily? Yeah well mine is very in keeping with uh, this week's topic so something I originally pitched back in February which I've been chasing ever since uh was finally commissioned this month so it just shows that perseverance um does pay off in the end um there were lots of reasons why the editor hadn't been getting back to me, um, stuff going on behind the scenes. It wasn't that they didn't like the idea. So I can finally crack on with this uh, big feature that I've had the idea for at the beginning of the year. Oh, excellent. Well, it just shows persistence is key, right? And it's, yeah, sometimes it's just the timing and it's just kind of other other things that might be going on yeah. as, to, as to why that, that pitch um, hasn't landed. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll get on to all of that today. That's really the absolutely. Crux. We're gonna we're gonna get a view from the other side of the the other side for once. Okay, so it's time to introduce our guests. First up, we have Rebecca Liu, commissioning editor at Guardian Saturday Magazine. Yes, and we also have with us Monkey Louis. International Features Editor at the BMJ. 
Yeah, so both our guests have experience from both sides of the editing and journalism side of the fence. So we're just going to get stuck right in uh, and pick their brains about this. So, Rebecca, what makes a good pitch for you? Is there a sort of winning formula that you're looking for? Um, Hi, uh, thanks for having me. Um, Well, I edit a very specific column at The Guardian called The Guardian Experience Column. And those are all about quirky, um, quite dramatic stories like I Was Swallowed by a Hippo is a pretty famous one. Um, There was a farmer that ate the same lunch every day for many years. Um, So I think for a column with that specific a brief, a pitch that basically can match that is is all I all I really need of you know um in that case it's just a headline that will make you instantly want to read it um when it comes to broader features uh, across the paper I would say maybe the most important thing is uh, a pitch that instantly grabs your attention um and is engaging and makes you feel like you really want to read about this immediately um because we have a broad readership I think it's it's usually usually it's usually really helpful to have a sense of you know this is a topic that will engage a wide range of readers yeah yeah and that's the thing isn't it it's knowing the publication and and really understanding the types of things that they publish um and having a really good look before before you pitch um monkey can bring you in here because i wonder do you um, do you get many new writers getting in touch and are there any common mistakes that they make? Yeah, I get uh, new writers all the time. In fact, I've had like three already this morning <laughs> um, get in touch, which is always great. It's great to have new people kind of come in. Um, actually, it's kind of related to what you just said, that probably the most common mistake is surprisingly not uh, taking the time to research the publication not taking the time to actually look and sort of see what are you, who is your audience, what kinds of things do you publish, and even having a quick look to see if the thing that you're pitching has been written about recently at all. Um, and ideally, if it is similar to something that we've done before, what is different about it? What would you be bringing to the story that's a new angle or in providing new insight or anything like that? Um, so it's as simple as that, really, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the one thing that um, perhaps if you're new to this, that you might not always get right to start with because you're thinking about your idea rather than how that's going to work for that publication specifically. You're kind of just sending it out to any editor you can think of rather than doing that targeted approach. And uh, Rebecca, I am completely obsessed with the Guardian experience column. Like one day, that is my dream to come across a story so random that I can actually... Uh, you know get one of those crazy headlines I think they're great and um, how sort of complete I suppose would you expect an, I- an idea to be what does the journalist need to have in place before they contact you because we were talking about the, the other day that balances you as the freelance kind of how much work you're having to do in advance before you've got that commission secured Um, Yeah, definitely. I would say know enough about the subject, know enough about the broad outlines of a subject and the story. Um, You don't have to have all the facts, but it's usually useful as an editor to get a sense of why the journalist is interested in the subject, what questions they would seek to answer, how, you know, what, and also 
how they would structure the piece, which I think would also come in a little bit of research, at least, you know, you don't have to say, I will say all these, all this data and this information, this fact, but it would be useful to be, to say something like, and I will look at this and this and this, um, and then, you know, ask this broader question of X, Y, Z. Um, I think that would usually be really helpful. It's usually, it's also, if you're a new writer, a really helpful way of giving an editor a sense of how you write and how you think, um, which can be quite important when, you know, we're, we're just sitting there at our desk getting, getting lots of emails a day. Um, so yeah, in general, I would say you don't need to know everything, but having, but showing some thought in how you would approach a piece um, and what you would like to know is really useful. Um, and that can be done in a paragraph or two. Yeah, so I imagine, Rebecca, that that actually helps you as an editor have confidence in that person, that they've actually just thought through a little bit about how this might look. And also show, coming back to that, that you know you've done some research into what that publication wants, what it might look like on the page, etc. Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder as well, because this is something Emma and I were talking about, um, is when it comes to... Um, who they're going to speak to like who their sources are going to be do you expect them to say in the pitch like exactly who they're going to speak to um, or just to give a general sense and how important is it that they have already got those people to agree to speak to them for for a potential article can you comment on that um, again Rebecca uh, yeah of course uh, I would it sort of depends on the piece itself. If it the piece is, you know, it's really integral that a specific person speaks to them for the article, then you would really need them to make it work. Um, if it's uh, just generally speaking about a pitch I said yes to a few weeks ago, you know, broadly about the intersection of the art world and the tech world, um, and someone says, you know, I would get a curator in to speak about this and a tech person to speak about that. I don't think you would really need specific names, but showing that you will have voices speaking to different angles of the story would be useful. Yeah, Monkey, and I can see you nodding away there and you're obviously right um, editing a sort of more specialist publication. How much detail do you, would you want to see on I'm going to go to this expert or this organisation um, sort of in that pitching process similar to what Rebecca said I think you want some indication that they've thought about what angles or what voices they would need to represent those angles kind of in there um not necessarily specific names if, if for those particular bits but obviously if the narrative or the plot is is sort of focused around a particular plot. I mean I'm thinking particularly with Rebecca's experience column if it's something like that you obviously need to have some indication that you have a contact with that key character or key interviewee in there um with a more general feature it's probably less so i'd say like rebecca was saying if it's like you know i'm gonna have a tech person here i'm gonna have someone here for, for us it's often like you know we've got we'll, we'll contact somebody from a patient group we'll contact somebody from x charity we'll contact someone from x hospital or so on and that's that's perfectly fine maybe they've got some names maybe they're already in touch with somebody and if so so much the better that's an indication that the story is pretty much kind of ready to go um but usually at that sort of pitching stage I think um if they've given that indication then at least you can start having a conversation about do you have the contacts are you actually able to do it if someone says to you you know yeah and I'll get Elon Musk in to talk about this and I'll get 
Princess Diana in to talk about this one, you'd be a bit like, yeah, all right, that's really nice and good, but are you actually going to be able to contact those people? So it's some some sense of, you know, what level they'll be at, what how, uh, where they're at maybe with the contacts and so on. But I think it's, it's all about shining light on how much they've thought through the actual uh, pitch and the actual angle, nitty gritty bullet points of what they're actually going to be delivering. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's really useful advice for people that they don't have to have like absolutely everything nailed down, but they need to know where they're going to go to speak to, you know, particular voices of authority. But like you say, if they're key, someone's key to the story, then, you know, they need to have agreed in principle, at least to have uh, to do the interview in the first place. And I wonder sort of off the back of that, um, Rebecca, if I can put this to you, if you've got a new writer um and you know they may have a really good pitch and they seem to have good contacts um is there anything else that they need to provide in that pitch to kind of demonstrate that they're actually going to be able to come up with the, with the goods at the end of the day yeah i think every editor might have a different approach so <laughs> this is just mine um but i do have people sending me things like i've been published here and there and this is these are links to my other work um, what I sometimes find with that is, you know, that's not always the most helpful way for me to understand how they write, just because the, that those pieces have also been through an editorial process that I can't see. Um, so I usually find actually the email itself and sort of the writing there is really helpful in showing how they write and how they think and, and whether or not it would fit the magazine or, or the experience column itself. Um, but yeah, I would almost say just crafting a, a pitch that really suits both the tone and interests of a section and a magazine an editor might be looking after um, is already yeah a great sign that you know they'll they'll produce an excellent piece. Fantastic and Monkey, same question to you really because I would if I was contacting an editor I'd not worked with before. I think I would simply say, you know, I'm a freelance journalist specializing in this and I might put links to a couple of pieces that were relevant to the pitch that I was doing because in my email signature, I have links to all my other work and websites, et cetera. Is that the kind of thing that's useful as an editor? Do you look at websites and portfolios when you get new new writers coming to you? Yeah, certainly if it's a new person, I always at least open a couple of pieces to, to to have a look and look through their portfolio. So I think definitely the way forward now is not necessarily spend so much time in your email listing everything, but it's good to mention, particularly if you've got some really big name publications like The Guardian or The New York Times or something in there, or a relevant competitor like us for the BMJ, if you've written for The Lancet or you've written for Nature or something like that, it's, it would be kind of nice to know that might catch my attention in the thousands of emails that I'm reading every uh, every day um, and then at that point you say you know my links are in my portfolio like you say you've got it in your signature that's the perfect place to do it because then if the editor wants to find out more they can go to your LinkedIn they can go to their portfolio you can have a look through but exactly like Rebecca was saying you don't know or you would expect that each piece has been through an extensive editorial process so you can't really know whether that person is going to be uh, good to work with or not. So the email 
the way that you've structured your pitch, the way that you come across, the thought that you put into how that works for the publication, what the angle is, who you're going to speak to, that kind of thing. I think that speaks volumes more necessarily than here's my best piece of work, which I got published in The New Yorker. But um, you don't know that this took seven years because it was a complete pain in the ass and I'm a pain in the ass to kind of work with. You can't kind of get that uh, get get that level of detail, I think. And um I mean, I, I always think, don't forget that when you are sending a pitch in, it's not dissimilar, and it's actually very similar to a job application. You do, you're applying for a job, and usually the most important thing with any kind of job application is that, as well as seeing if you can actually do the work, of course, and whether the idea is interesting, we as an editor are also seeing, is this person someone that's going to be easy to work with, or are they going to be a complete pain in the ass? In which case, you know, I'll be honest, nine out of 10 times, if someone seems like a pain in the ass in their initial pitch email, they usually turn out to be a bit of a pain to work with as well. So if you just seem like you've really thought through your, your, your idea, you've thought well about the publication, you've thought well about our audience, um, it's a well-fitting, good story, and you seem like a decent person, then yeah, I think that'll be enough probably to get you through the door and at least for me to, to give you a go. Yeah, yeah. And I think this, again, is something Emma and I talk about a lot is kind of being being reliable as well and, and being responsive if you know if someone has got an interest in your story and they've got any follow-up questions making sure you get back to them and you get back with accurate information and that you know in the end you file on time and file to the brief and all the rest of it so yeah that idea of kind of being someone who gives the editor what they want um yeah that really kind of chimes with, with stuff we've been we've been sort of banging on about for quite some time and I wonder there, kind of just expanding on that, Rebecca, if if there are some like big no-nos or some really awful things you've seen in pictures that you, you would just say, like, there's no way I'm going to commission this person. What things do people get wrong? Um, I wouldn't, I don't think I've experienced any sort of outright awful um, or huge no-nos. I would say the the most common mistake is which is easily done in a huge organization is just not sending stuff to the right person. So, you know, I don't really work on any first person short articles, but I, I get sent them a lot. Um, and it's sort of, I'll sometimes say, this is the right person to go to. So sometimes that is helpful. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, a bit difficult. Um, I think sometimes, and it depends on every publication, but sort of just being sent a long draft and saying, would this work for you? Often it doesn't, you know, because the editor has a very specific remit. So if it's sort of a cold, cold idea and you don't even know what sections they work across, I usually can't really do anything with that. Um, there was something else I can't really remember. Let me have a think. Um, no, no, no. Um, what about, what about spelling your name right? Does that annoy you if people get your name wrong? Because that really annoys me um not really I would say less so in my current role but I used to monitor submissions for a magazine um to the general inbox and just any email that opened with dear sir uh, <laughs> you know uh that that I think would slightly put me off someone um but yeah I I would say I don't know I haven't seen that many disastrous pitches, just ones that don't really fit what the person on the other end is working for. Oh, the other tip I was going to say is um, usually try and email one person because in the past someone has 
you know, if you pitch six people in an email chain, what happens is a lot of them work at different sections of the magazine. They don't want to be the person, you know, they don't know what the other people are thinking. So what happens is you're just not really, you're much less likely to get a response because no one knows who's actually, you know, taking this on. And um, so, yeah, try and email one person. Yeah, that that's a really good piece of advice. And Monkey, is there is there anything that you that's a big no no on your list? Um, well, I mean, I'd, I'd echo similar things. Um, I hate when people send me an entire finished article, or, or you know, here's something that I've drafted. Is it going to work for you? Like you say, it's not really. They haven't really given any thought as to again, like we were saying before, your publication, your audience how it's different, how it's going to work for you or anything like that. It's just like you're on the end of, an, of, a, of a spam email chain, essentially. Um, I tend to forgive spelling mistakes and stuff, uh, mainly because I've done it in the past. Myself, we all send a lot of emails. It's easy to do sometimes, especially if, you know, you're kind of copy pasting some paragraphs and sort of stuff like that. And frankly, you know, my name's not the easiest to spell. So people have always got my name wrong. So maybe I'm a bit more forgiving than uh, <laughs> than other people can be about that. But I think, yeah, the biggest no-no is just, again, just people who have clearly not given any thought whatsoever into what your publication is or what your section is or you know what who your audience is or sort of anything like that I mean the people that still pitch me features or not even features sometimes but profiles of like nfts and stuff like that and it's not just PRs sometimes it's actual freelancers pitching stuff and I'm just like do I does, does the British Medical Journal seem like the kind of place that's going to do crypto stories no so I mean yeah it, it's that 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 it annoys me a lot so I think say that's the biggest no-no but it seems like something that should be fairly easy to not do really yeah I mean I think about that from PRs all the time just like the the emails I get that are clearly have no relevance to me what whatsoever I just I don't why am I on this list I don't know you had a great one the other day didn't you about oh yeah about the uh, health benefits of window blinds I don't know I don't know I don't they were reaching I don't I've I've saved it as a teaching tool for for student journalists of what would you do with this um but yeah I mean that brings me quite nicely to my next question actually which is about how often and when we should chase because we don't want to be annoying but you might not have seen the original pitch email and like you know I'm sure you get so many every day so what's kind of the most helpful thing from our point of view in terms of you know following up that original pitch Uh, Rebecca I'll come to you first on that one yeah um speaking of window blind emails um i think you know when you become an editor your email probably just does enter some pr database so i do get loads and loads of emails every day lots of it irrelevant to my job which is all to say that i always am kind of trying to race behind my inbox um and a follow-up is actually usually really appreciated I would say give it two to three days because sometimes I'm actually maybe two days at most, you know, sometimes I just have a specific routine where I answer all the emails I need to the next day. Um, But yeah, I would say a quick follow up. I always appreciate it just based on how my situation, how I work. Um, You know, I completely understand from the other end. It's it's frustrating not hearing back um, people who just who say, you know, even just a quick no would work. Um, Sometimes what's happened is 
again, because there's a big, big organization, I've sent it on to someone else and said, this will work for me, but you know, and then I'll just forget to tell them that I've sent it on to someone else. So yeah, I, I would say it's, don't worry about following up, but you know, and it can just be a very short, like, hi, I just want to know where, where, if this will work or not. Yeah, can I just also jump in? I think like um, I agree. I think like a, a few days is fine, even a week. You know, it's it's kind of okay, but we never mind following up. I mean, it is obviously obviously annoying if you follow up within twelve hours and sort of like, did you see my email? Did you see my email? Did you see my email? But I mean, I think most people know when they're sort of doing that or not, and they're especially when it comes to features. I mean, this is something that you you're not gonna know necessarily until you work with that publication more but you get more of a sense of what the the ebb and flow of commissioning cycles is um so usually you know if you're really busy you struggle to keep up with your email like rebecca was sort of saying but if it is an obvious quick no then i would normally try and get back to that person right away if i can just because it keeps it fresh in my mind rather than getting buried in 100 emails or anything like that but um sometimes it takes a bit longer because you say you need to discuss it with other colleagues maybe there's a similar idea brewing or something like that you just need to check a few things um it might also depend on budgets you know the different times of the month or different times of the year you might on one occasion you might be able to take on more of that kind of story but on another occasion maybe not so much so so it's so you know there can be different factors kind of coming in there that can affect how long it sort of takes but as long as you're polite in your follow-up I don't think it really it really matters and you know you could if you don't get a reply from the first follow-up you can wait another few day a couple of days and then follow up again I think if if nobody replies after three or four emails I think it's probably a no but yeah yeah yeah, I always if it's a, if it's a new editor, I think three would be the maximum I would follow up. But if it's an editor I work regularly, then I don't give up. Like I mentioned at the beginning, something I pitched in February, and I must have followed it up about a dozen times because I knew they would eventually commission it, and I knew there must be something else going on. And it and it, it was basically they were understaffed and they would you know, just not managing to get back. And they obviously had enough stuff in, in the bag already. Um, so, and there's editors that have told me, just keep keep hassling, just persist, persist, persist. But yeah, like you say, if it's a new new contact that, you know, that, that maybe two or three times is enough. And um, one other thing I wanted to kind of ask about, because another thing that people are kind of perhaps tread a little bit carefully and, and uh, all very kind of British about is is about money and fees um and so it would be really useful for our listeners to kind of know like at what point should you be talking about fees and you know is there room to negotiate there um Rebecca kind of how does it work for you um yeah I've worked for two years at a paper that's been in operation for hundreds of years so I've kind of gone in and especially with columns it's like this is how much we pay um and I think that is quite regular and I imagine it would be hard for a new writer coming in to sort of ask for more than that um just on the basis of you know <laughs> the weight of tradition um but that said you know if there are extenuating circumstances um, or if it's, if, if you've worked with, you know, that editor before and you've sort of developed that relationship and, and, you know, you're more of a known quantity within the paper, I think that opens up space for negotiation a lot more. 
Um, but yeah, I would say as a new writer, I think if you, I would say if there is a specific case and you can make the case for it, um, it's definitely worth trying. Maybe the answer will still be no, but you know, um, having been on the other side of journalism as well, uh, a good piece of advice I did get was, you know, the worst thing that can happen is someone says no, which is not really a bad thing. Yes. And I mean, I think the approach I usually take is if there's a reason, so if something's going to take a bit more investigating than kind of a normal feature or needs a really quick turnaround or there's some kind of specific reason rather than just asking for the sake of asking. Um, Monkey, is that kind of, does that sort of align with where a good negotiation might might lie? Yes, I mean, it's necessary a good negotiation, good haggling, isn't it? You kind of like, if you've got a good reason for it, that adds to your case. I mean, I'd agree with Rebecca, I think, um, for all of us having been on that, um, on the freelancer, and you know, the pitching side of things. Like Rebecca's saying, the worst that anyone could say is no. So I would say just always ask. Um, I think you have a good sense of what's fair and what's not. But I would definitely say that as a new writer coming in, you don't have a stronger position so you might just have to judge with their first offer whether that's something you can accept or not um i mean the sad reality of it is that it also depends on the brand you know if it's you know i mean i will say the bmj but if it's like the guardian or the new york times or the new yorker or something like that and you are desperate to get that first piece sort of in there for the recognition you might just have to accept what they offer, although there's no harm in sort of asking for a bit more, but I wouldn't then immediately sort of go in and ask for 200 times more than uh, more than they'd offer necessarily, unless you were already a big name writer. And, you know, there was that, so, but th th that would be a different type of commissioning, I think. Um, so yeah, there's no, there's certainly no, no, no harm in asking, but be clear about your position and especially as a new writer, I think. Yeah, it's kind of leaving that door open, isn't it? So that you could still accept it, even if the answer is kind of no, you've not like gone in really kind of hard and said, I will only do it for this, for this amount. Yeah, I mean, the one say thing also that... don't sell yourself yeah. short, though. Yeah. You know, I mean, like if you if you really would struggle to, to eat <laughs> on that amount, and you have no other jobs or sort of anything like that, then, you know, fair enough. Just sort of say, look, I'm sorry, but this is my usual rate and I can't go any lower than that. And then it's up to the editor, really, whether they decide or not. I mean, unfortunately, I, I hate negotiating and handling as well. But, you know, it's it, it, it is the sort of nature of thing. You find a compromise usually. Um, that works for both of you and I could say sometimes sometimes editors depending on the time of the year or the time of the month or sort of anything like that there might be more leeway and sometimes there just isn't any leeway you know I mean bear in mind where, when maybe people's budgets are um, so sort of year end and especially you know uh, financial year end sometimes that can be quite difficult because we're under pressure to um, to kind of squeeze things and the, the pot's been used up sometimes so that can come into play but it's always worth asking. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's both. It's great to hear from both of you that it doesn't put you off if someone's asking. And like you say, you can just say no and kind of move on if that's the situation. And um, while we've got you both here, we really need to ask you about what we can do as freelance journalists to help that once you've commissioned somebody to help that process go smoothly. Like what, you know, what do you need from us? What are the things that are going to make you think I'm going to say yes to that person? again next time I want to keep working with them um Monkey I'll come to you first on this one what's 
what do what would I need to do as a freelance journalist to kind of get that regular work and to to make you feel like that had been a, a job well done um well I mean it's the it, it's the it's the standard obvious stuff file on time <laughs> be easy to work with deliver what you said you were going to deliver um be prompt with you know getting back on questions and edits and, and that kind of stuff like that um generally I say don't be a pain in the ass kind of thing as long as you know everybody's busy everyone's trying to get things done uh, as well as they as they can do so as long as you have a decent working relationship um then I think I'd be likely to to commission that person again I mean particularly as you say if your pitch and your idea has been a good one a really good one and a really good fit for the audience the publication you know the types of things that um we've done um you know all, all that kind of stuff if you've thought it through and you genuinely are coming from a good place of having thought it through then i think you stand a good chance um it's it, it's not hard really i think a lot of the time as long as you deliver what you said you're going to do it's fine yeah and rebecca is that sort of reliability really important for you as well because i've been on the other side of this and it's amazing how many times people go awol they've just disappeared and stopped communicating with you and that's it <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Basically, what Monkey was saying, file on time. Um, it usually helps if you file within the word count as, as well. Um, I know this sounds frustratingly basic, but yeah, I think um, something I've kind of learned through being more on the editor side of things um, is basically as a freelancer and on the writer side, I was putting so much anxiety in the kind of writing process of, am I good enough? You know, is this asshole good enough? Um, whereas kind of from this side it's like the biggest hurdle for me is almost the work before that which is what does this publication do what are its sections what does it need how can I craft something that fits that that I would say now seems like the bulk of the work and you know if you're a working freelancer like writing the copy doing on time being around to answer queries um, especially for a newspaper that might have you know a very tight turnaround does feel much more straightforward um so yeah I would say it's it's it would be quite hard for me to it would be quite hard to have an experience where you know you don't work with someone again unless they're just really unpleasant or ghost you can I add one more thing as well I just thought of which is um surprisingly the number of people that do not file their invoices so it should not be my job to make sure you get paid um i obviously want to so i do chase quite a lot of people up but um yeah you'd be surprised the number of people that it goes like eight months nine months or something and they still haven't asked for a an invoice so they clearly don't want to get paid but then the, the, what worries me is that inevitably it all comes up and then my boss is kind of like why have we got 20 invoices that now have to come out of the end of year budget kind of thing so um please file your invoices and you know if it, if it were me I would file my invoice literally as soon as I file the article if I can um, yeah. because it means you never know how long it's going to take to get processed either yeah and I guess freelancers need to have that checklist don't they that they they know how they're going to get paid so do they need to send an invoice and who do they need to send it to what are they going to get paid what's the deadline what's the word count is there anything in particular that you want them to cover and they need to be making sure they're getting that information from you um you know from the outset um rather than it kind of expecting necessarily you to kind of be forthcoming with that because you know if you're 
commissioning lots of content you can't you might you know the odd thing you might forget to tell every single writer so yeah definitely a responsibility on the freelancer to find out how to get paid because I think sometimes that's the thing they don't know how it's going to work because there's a new writer and I I get that you know the admin side is is not unglamorous it's a pain I understand why a lot of people put it off until a certain time of the month and they do it all in one go or anything like that but yeah um, but yeah do it's always just it's always good to keep a list if only just so that you get your money (laughs) yeah and I think sending the invoice with the copy makes sense because you kind of you know you, you do them together and and then it's done, isn't it? So, you know, you don't forget to do it. So I think that's that's a really good piece of advice. I mean, I think we've probably covered, like, most of the basics now, but I wonder, like, Rebecca, is there anything else that you think, you know, would be your sort of top tip for for someone who is pitching something they really need to do or not do? Yeah, I think uh, speaking from a newspaper perspective, something I found very useful um, was when I, find, you know, got a print edition of The Guardian and suddenly, because, you know, everything's on the website, and you can't really tell where it's set in print, where, uh, where it's set in print. But just having a sit down with the paper and getting familiar with the different sections, realizing, oh, every Wednesday they run this series, um, and I would say for people, you know, who are looking to get into the, a newspaper that, you know, has a huge list of established writers to draw on, a, a really good way in is looking at the kind of sideways series um, that they might run, like the Experience Column or uh, G2, uh, a, sub, a paper here, G2 here has something called The Moment That that Made Me. And, you know, these series often have editors who are just want to fill that slot every week and, and they need that. And, you know, that's something that more established writers wouldn't necessarily be working or writing for all the time. So I think just looking at how a paper works, finding sections that have a very specific brief, um, I can assure you there's just always an editor being like, how do I get the slot filled? Um, and, and that might be a useful way to sort of break yourself uh, break into places that might seem a bit impossible to navigate that's a really good idea isn't it it's kind of um slightly the other way around rather than having an idea and thinking about where it fits think about the sections of that publication that might use freelancers look at those bylines look at yeah kind of if they're commissioning content from different people that seems like yeah something where there might be an, an in and then come up with an idea to to fit that I mean I'm still reeling from the concept that people don't file their invoices for months what's what's happening there I'm like I am definitely that person who is I'll be sending it before the copy if I could (laughs) yeah Um, yeah so yeah I mean I think yeah maybe that just comes from them um not understanding the the process maybe but yeah like definitely get your invoices in guys um so yeah, we're going to uh, round up. There's been so much useful information there and we'll put together a list of resources for our show notes. Um, but before we sign off, we'd just like to ask you for uh, one last thing, which is your recommendation of a piece of work by a freelance journalist. Rebecca, let's come to you first for your recommendation. Uh, yes, I'm going to not stray very far from home and say um, 
that a few weeks ago I received an email from the, the writer Chloe Hamilton, um, who it was just a story about a woman whose boyfriend lives with her husband. And it's a very sweet piece about a woman who um, split up with her husband, but they never divorced because they have a very strong friendship. And for a whole lot of reasons, the new boyfriend that she started dating needed a place near where her husband lived. Um, and the two of them now live in the same house and she actually lives elsewhere. So that was a great example, I think, of a pitch that just made me sit up straight in my seat, go, this is incredible. Um, a really fun story, you know, and it's, yeah, been a really popular article on the website. And I think um, Chloe's been contacted by, you know, several radio programs about that too. Um, so uh, that, yeah, that's my pick. Yeah, that sounds like a great story. We'll find a link to that and we'll put that in our show notes. And Monkey, how about you? What's your recommendation? Um, so my recommendation is uh, also not too far from home, but um, it's a, a feature that was recently nominated for a medical journalism award. Um, and it's by uh, a, a good, great freelancer who works for us often called Chris Baranewick, who I think you both know. Um, and it's called Why Health Experts Are Fighting to End Daylight Savings Time. Um, and it came about uh, largely because we're talking about slots and things that come around uh, regularly, but um, we were thinking about, you know, obviously, you know, changing the clocks, it's happening again at the end of this month, um, and what effect that has on, on health. There were some rumblings, I think, with, about the American Medical Association putting out some guidance. So I was talking to Chris about it, and he came up with a really interesting way of looking at it, which is to kind of not only see what was happening with the different medical associations, but actually he uncovered a I'm going to call it a war. It's probably not as dramatic as that, but there's a there's a, a factions of whether we should be switching to um, normal time in quotation marks or daylight savings time. And so, actually, I think the evidence he, he overviews that goes an overview of the evidence. It's a really great explainer with a narrative about how the um, the the evidence is there that if you be not changing clocks is better for your health but then talking about why it is that there's one set of experts who think you should be on one time and one other set of experts that says you shouldn't be which you didn't even know this was actually taking place so i think it was just a really interesting way of, of looking at it and he's a very engaging uh sort of writer really good reporting and everything so uh, i'm very glad that um he chose to publish that story with the british medical journal Fantastic. It's always interesting when there's a bit of conflict, isn't there, that you can uh, uncover <laughs> for a story. Okay, so thank you both so much. Been really helpful. Um, time to bring the episode to a close. Yes, so if you'd like some more tips on how to develop a successful freelance career, then you can sign up to our FFJ newsletter on Substack, where we share lots of tips and personal experience every week. Yep, you can join our uh, large Facebook community um, and ask queries in there, get some lovely tips and advice from other experienced freelancers, um, and also just make some freelance friends. Uh, we're also on Twitter. Um, I'm at Freelancing4, uh, we're Freelancing4 together, I should say, and I'm on there personally as at Emma Journo. Yeah, and I'm at Lily Cantor, um, also over on Instagram, at Lily Cantor as well. And then just finally, a big thank you to our series producer, Maddie Jury. Yeah, and we'll be back with another episode next week. Bye for now. Goodbye. <laughs>